This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I'm the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining me. Nearly every week, the news media are telling us that segregation is increasing in the United States. The New York Times headlines, segregation prominent in schools. USA Today screams, the GAO study shows that segregation is worsening. PBS Frontline holds a special on the return of school segregation. But how accurate are these studies? Are they accurate accounts of what is happening in America, or are they alternative facts? To discuss this question with me today is Greg Critano and Vikram Mashri, and they have just presented a paper at a conference of the National Bureau on Economic Research entitled Explaining Recent Trends in U.S. School Segregation. So, Vishram, and Greg, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Vishram, uh, mm -hmm. let me ask you this question. Are schools becoming more segregated or less segregated? So I think overall um, it's pretty clear that schools are becoming less segregated racially. And the reason why some of these headlines have, have been kind of alluding to increasing segregation is because they're looking at a very narrow aspect of segregation. In particular, they're looking only at what's happening with minority students. But if you look at what's happening with the entire student body in the United States, it's pretty clear that segregation has been decreasing over the last quarter century. Well, so don't we care mostly about minority students? I mean, after all, if the population was totally of all one ethnic group as it once was in the United States, except for uh, a slave population, well, okay, the white population would be perfectly happy with that. So isn't it that we're really interested in the amount of segregation that exists among minority students? So it's certainly true that we should be interested um, and maybe even more interested in uh, segregation among minority students as well. But that the fact that over still over half of the national student body is white means that What's happening with the entire student body really does impact what's happening with minority students as well in meaningful ways. So, uh, yeah, may, uh, may I just great, mention yeah. that on, on top of that, even if minority students, uh, and there has been plenty of interesting evidence showing that uh, minority students have been exposed to um, with a lot of segregation has been predominantly bad for them, and because of that, we are also interested in understanding the actual causes of that increase in segregation in minority schools. And what Vikram and I have been doing here is that in trying to understand these determinants, it's useful to look at all the evidence. And what is happening in white segregated schools is also very important to provide us clues to what are the actual determinants. And this is what allows us to realize that perhaps it has less to do with what people have been discussing so far. So one of the things that your paper shows um, is that there's a lot more minority students in the United States today. How, how big of a change has actually happened in the percentage of the students in our elementary and secondary schools who are of minority background? There's, there's been a pretty substantial shift over the last 25 years. Um, and 
uh, of an increase of about 10 to 15 percent of the national uh, student body has increased has now become minority. So uh, that's the increase in in the share of the national student body. And some demographers are predicting around 2020 or 2021 minorities are actually going to be the majority of the student body, the public school student body in the United States. So it's been a pretty dramatic shift recently. Well, how important is that for understanding how much segregation there is? It's actually pretty important. First, we should define what we mean by minority here. We, we mean uh, in our study African-Americans and Hispanics, and most of these trends that we have been observing of minority share going up in the country has been predominantly due to uh, inflows of Hispanics. That's what we've been finding so far. And uh, it turns out that in, in our quest to figure out what are the main determinants of this overall reduction in segregation, but also increase in segregation of, among minority schools and reduction in segregation among white schools, in our quest, we arrived at the conclusion that it turns out that this demographic channel, this aggregate channel of these inflows of predominantly Hispanics have been central to everything that we are finding in terms of the trends in segregation. So this very substantial increase in the percentage of students of Hispanic background that have entered into the United States, and maybe there's some demographic uh, the fertility rates for Hispanics has been higher than for other groups in the past? So in the past it has been higher, although in the last five years it has declined pretty substantially, but at least considering up to what's happened up to 2015, uh, the Hispanic fertility rate has consistently been much higher than the white fertility rate. So it's fertility rate, but mostly in migration, that has been producing the biggest change in the de demographic composition of the American elementary and secondary absolutely, public schools. Absolutely. It's, it's this massive influx of Hispanics over the last 25 yeah. years. Because although the fertility rate of Hispanics uh, is much higher than the fertility rate of whites from the, our sample period, what needs to happen for the fertility story to be important is a, an increasing fertility rate for Hispanics versus whites, and we are not finding this to be as strong. So if, you, if it were not for this demographic change, what do you think the segregation pattern would be in the United States today as compared to 1988 when you began your study? <laughs> That's a very hard yeah. question, it's, I know, but uh, let me just pose it anyhow. It's a hard question, but um, some of the tools that we've developed will give us a chance to at least attempt to answer that. And I think that um, I think we can say that in the absence of any of these demographic changes, we would have a country with a lot more heavily, heavily white schools. That is, schools that are 25% or fewer uh, minorities. So we'd have a lot more um, segregated white schools, and we'd have. Um, still a pretty similar number of segregated minority schools. Um, and so what, what these inflows have done, they have increased the number of segregated minority schools, but they've also had this additional effect of desegregating these highly white schools. So now, if it, it, a lot of, when you decide whether a school is, uh, or whether the system is segregated or not, a lot depends on the particular measure 
that you use, and I thought that one of the most interesting things in your paper was the different results you get depending on the specific measure of segregation that's used. Can you just take our audience through that uh, yeah. one by one? Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think the the short answer is there's not a single correct way to measure segregation, and that's why a lot of really smart people have put thousands of hours into thinking about this in the last 50 years. Um, so what we do is we try to measure segregation using a variety of different ways. Um, and so kind of following what the Government Accounting Office has done, we start by defining segregated schools as those that are um, over 75% minority or over 75% white. Um, and the advantage of this kind of measurement is, uh, the advantage of this kind of measure is it lets us tell for any particular school, it lets us identify it as segregated or not. And so using this, this kind of measure, we find these increases in minority segregated schools, um, similar to what some of these reports uh, that you mentioned talk about, but we also find big decreases in white segregated schools. About White schools are desegregating about twice as fast as minority schools are segregating. Now there's a bunch of other measures of segregation that try to measure sort of how evenly distributed minorities are um, or how evenly distributed um, white students are among the population. Um, and the advantage of those measures is they sort of, it doesn't really matter who the pool of students is, it just matters how those students are allocated. And so any kind of demographic shifts that changes the pool of students won't really change these measures. Um, and, and what we find for a lot of these measures is there's been a slight decrease in segregation. Um, the, the, the last two types of measures we look at is how, um, how isolated minorities are and how isolated uh, white students are, which is to say um, what fraction of their interactions are with students of the same race. And here we find that minority students have become more isolated, uh, and we believe a that's the result of the fact that there's just a lot more minorities in the student body, so um, sort of mechanically they're more likely to bump into each other. Um, and on the flip side of that, white students have become a lot less isolated over this period. Yeah. And the, the other measures of segregation that we have been using was not only the 75% threshold and 25%, but we have used many different thresholds from 65 up until 90%, and we arrive at the same conclusion. So you get the same general conclusion yes. that minority students are more isolated, white students are less isolated, but the system as a whole is not, the level of segregation in the system as a whole has gone down once you adjust for That's the correct. demographic change that has occurred. Yes, correct. As these Taubman index and the index of dissimilarity. That's uh, correct. Yeah. A lot of people say it doesn't make that much difference whether a school is segregated or not. They want their child to go to a good school, not to a school that has any particular racial composition. Now, why are the two of you so interested in this question of the racial composition of the school? Okay. Uh, first of all, there has been plenty of evidence that peers matter in general. So whoever you get exposed to in school matters, has important implications in test scores, important implications later in life, and so on. Uh, on top of that, we know from other important literature that minorities uh, that have been 
predominantly in minority segregated schools, they have, this had been harmful to them. Uh, again, in test scores, later in life, and so on. So this is the, the key motivation for us to, to work on this paper. But more broadly, Victor and I also think about this general idea that if you want to work in, if you want to have a, a, a functional society, it is a good idea to every once in a while to have to bump in shoulders with somebody who you disagree with. And there are several reasons why similar people tend to agree with each other. And it's nice to get exposed to some kind of diversity for, for ideas to spread. So if we're going to have a desegregated society, we need to have desegregated schools. That's right. That's right. It's yeah. definitely uh, an important yeah. ingredient for that, yeah. Now, uh, so you have, like others, have combined African Americans and Hispanics into one category called minority students. But other people say there's huge differences between African Americans and Hispanic students. Uh, Hispanic students have migrated voluntarily into the United States. African Americans were dragged over here on ships and enslaved for centuries and put in highly segregated, legally segregated institutions for another century. I mean, that's, the experiences are profoundly different in many important ways that have consequences even to today. So why have you combined them together and have you thought about the possibilities of looking at each group separately to see what their distinctive uh, experiences are in the American schools? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that that black students and Hispanic students are very different um, in a lot of ways and in their experiences as well. The thing about uh, sort of modeling things is we have to make these choices to simplify the analysis to make it um, more accessible. Um, and so for that reason, we kind of followed uh, what the government has done, the government accounting office, in, in classifying um, blacks and Hispanics both as minorities. Um, but what we have done in some other research is we've considered how black parents and Hispanic parents enroll their children differently. Um, and in some analysis of enrollment patterns in LA County, we did find that, that black parents and Hispanic parents have very different, um, they have very different enrollment patterns. So Greg, you wanna talk about that? Yeah, they actually respond very differently to uh, white parents versus black parents, versus, to white students versus black students versus Hispanic students. So for instance, we find that uh, black parents tend to respond positively to uh, black students uh, coming in the school and tend to respond negatively to uh, Hispanic students coming in the school. Hispanics uh, go the same way, they tend to respond positively towards Hispanics but much stronger than blacks did and also Hispanics tend to respond negatively to blacks, uh, to black students. And it turns out that these, um, it's exactly like Vikram said, that just for simplification purposes, we have to do that. But there are additional insights that we would come up with once we allow for that additional source of responses. So this is something that you have done in some of your work and you're planning on extending We're planning on extending now. Yeah, we will definitely be extending our analysis. Yes. That way. I'm sure everybody will be looking forward to, to seeing that. Uh, What's the trend in people's preferences for people of their own ethnic background? Do you see any differences between 1988 and 2015? Is there any trend there? Are people 
more eager to be with people like themselves or are they yeah. more willing to be part of a larger multi-ethnic society? What's, yeah. what's so, the trend? Yeah, we, we are finding that when, whenever, say, minorities come in the schools, what we find is that whites tend to respond negatively to that and minorities tend to respond positively to that. By negative and positive, I mean more whites decide to leave school and minorities decide to come in that school where minority share is going up. Now, from that to have to make a statement about preferences is really complicated. First of all, even if it was preference, it wouldn't be necessarily discrimination because, of course, as we all know, there are lots of other reasons why, I mean, white people, because of historical reasons, might have similar tastes in lots of things that they might want to hang out with each other, they want to be around each other. The same thing happens with minorities. And this is not necessarily should be understood as discrimination. But on top of that, even if you had strong discrimination preferences, it, it may not be the case that you're going to be able to exercise them. So for instance, you might consider, for instance, if I was a black parent and I really like uh, high school quality, but I also want my kids to be exposed to a lot of black kids, I might have a really hard time finding a school, in, particularly in a rural area that has high minority share and also high school quality. And this, this is in part why we are finding that white uh, responses tend to be more uh, to tend to be stronger, more intense than minority responses. Maybe it's just because whiters, white people are able to exercise those choices. So responding to your question more directly, we are finding no change over time in those discriminatory responses. And we find that whites do respond negatively and at a higher intensity to an increasing minority share, and minorities respond positively and a lower intensity increase in minority share. Yeah, so so I would just I would just add one so so again to, to emphasize it's we really don't want to say anything about um, we really don't want to say anything about this being um, the preferences of parents for kids of a different race. Um, but what we do find is consistent with with a bunch of survey evidence that a number of sociologists have collected over the last twenty years that has shown that um, when parents are asked questions like, would you like to have um, your child be in a school with kids of a different race, of the same race, when, when people are asked those types of questions, um, their responses have been pretty stable over the past 20 years. So, so the fact that we're finding stable choices being made is pretty consistent with this larger sociology literature that has found that people's stated preferences have been pretty stable. So I hear, this is what I hear, and I, I'm sure there's a lot more research that needs to be done on this to nail everything down, but I hear you saying that preferences have been pretty stable over the last 25 years. I, I hear you saying that demography has changed a lot, and therefore the, what's happening in our school systems has changed a lot because uh, every. There's only so many schools to go to, and so what's happened is minorities are desegregating the white population, but at the same time, they are isolating minorities to a greater extent than ever before. And this is just a reality that uh, is driving the trends in the United States 
rather than any fundamental increase in racism per se. Is that too strong a conclusion? Well, I would just I would just say two things. The first thing, um, as a minor quibble, um, saying that things are more segregated than ever before, um, I would. It's definitely not the case com compared to sort of pre-civil rights era, where things were dramatically more segregated than they are today. So it's true that that there's greater segregation. Um, minorities are more segregated today than they were. 20 years ago, but it's nothing like it was in, say, the 50s. Um, the, the second thing is, even if people's preferences or the choices they made, their responses were pretty constant, that doesn't mean that segregation wouldn't change. Um, and so even if people had fixed preferences and they never changed over time, these, them acting on these preferences, that's going to accumulate gradually over time, and there's going to be this tendency towards increased segregation. However, the fact that we don't see that is, is evidence that these other shocks, these, these big demographic changes that are happening in society, they're sort of far outweighing any of these smaller gradual changes that arise due to discriminatory responses. Yes. So the, uh, these discriminatory responses would imply an increase in segregation in both minority schools and white schools. And that's, that alludes to a point early on. So the, the reason we want to have a more complete picture about, we want to talk about also about other schools besides those that are presently minority, is because we want to have clues about what are the determinants of the increase in segregation in minorities, minority schools. And because white segregated schools have been, going, have been becoming rarer, that gave us a clue that perhaps it was another channel besides discriminatory responses. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I, it's, uh, your paper's a, a very substantial correction on uh, what the news media has been saying for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I have with me uh, today uh, Greg Kraitano and Vikram Mashri, 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 uh, and uh, I, I thank you very much for discussing your important paper, explaining recent trends in U.S. school segregation, 1988 to 2014. This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. Thank you for joining us today.